This podcast is sponsored by the Music Player Network at musicplayer.com, the premier musician resource for keyboard players and beyond. Since the year 2000, the Music Player Network has been the go-to source for news and views on music technology, playing tips, and gigging help. The Keyboard Corner is one of the longest-running keyboard forums in Internet history, with guitar, bass, drum, and numerous recording and music tech forums also on offer. Frequented by weekend warriors, manufacturers' representatives, and professionals alike, MPN provides an invaluable resource for any musician, and it's 100% free to sign up and use. Go to www.musicplayer.com to see for yourself. Hello and welcome to episode 36 of the Keyboard Chronicles, a podcast for keyboard players of the gigging variety. I'm your host David Holloway and it's great as always to be here with you. Uh, My valued co-host Paul Bindig can't join us tonight, for some reason he feels the need to feed himself and his family. Uh, rather than join and have fun with me. So, you know, very devastated. But I am pleased um, to report that one of Paul's uh, great friends, bandmates and all-round good guy, Matt Goodluck, has joined me. Matt, how are you? I'm very well, thanks, David. Thank you for having me uh, on the show. No, my pleasure. And and I haven't just um, invited you on because you're a great guy. I've actually invited you on for a very good reason. Uh, well, there's two good reasons. One is that you're a devotee of a great deal of prog rock, which links to the guest we're speaking to today, which is Oliver Wakeman. Um, and the second point is that you've actually met and known and, and spent some time with Oliver Wakeman. So tell us a bit about that. That's right. Um, back in my in my youth, I travelled uh, to the UK, and um, I, well, uh, to cut a long story short, I, I kind of wound up on Clive Nolan's doorstep. <laughs> <laughs> Clive was very good at uh, taking me in and and uh, looking after me, and uh, we got along famously, obviously, because uh, I had a, a huge interest in in the prog scene, and he was he was working uh, quite a lot in that scene. And uh, that's how I got to meet Oliver. Um, as you'll hear in the in the interview, um, Oliver did a, a few albums with with Clive back in the uh, mid '90s, and uh, the studio where they recorded was actually where I used to live. So uh, I was very uh, fortunate to be uh, around during those days and uh, getting to to meet lots of really interesting musicians that passed through the studio there. And Oliver really was a, a great guy. We we got along very well, and uh, you know we were. A lot closer in age than uh, Clive and myself were, and and so we just kind of really hit it off, and uh, we we shared a lot of the same uh, favourite albums and things like that. So uh, yeah, it was really nice to um, uh, to get to meet Oliver. So yeah. it was fantastic to uh, to get to interview him. Yeah. So as you're here, it's a bit of a reunion. Um, it's fair to say, Matt, you won't have spoken to Oliver since you left the UK. So it'd be what That's twenty right. years. Yeah, it's been quite some time, yeah. so, uh, yeah. <laughs> no, so it's a great interview, and as um, Matt mentioned, Oliver's a great uh, great guy as well, so I think you'll enjoy this interview a lot. Enjoy. Oliver, thank you so much for joining. Really thrilled to have you here. Uh, pleasure, absolute pleasure. So, um, 
a regular question over the past year in COVID-19 times, and the UK certainly hasn't been immune from that, is about how have you been keeping busy? And, and particularly in your case, how have you been keeping busy post-Freedom Day? Uh, well, yeah, Freedom Day. I'm not really sure what's <laughs> yeah what, what's changed here. It's just it's a bit chaotic. Yeah. It really nobody nobody really knows. It's just basically people saying, yeah, now take charge of yourselves, and that seems yes <laughs> slightly shaky at the best of times. But we're we're we seem to be doing okay. It's nice to be able to go for a walk and go in places. But the lockdown itself was um, I've just busy i i never i never stop anyway so just lockdown just was more time to be busy yes. and do more busy things and um yeah it was it was quite nice did a couple of projects lots of sessions and and just kept myself mass massively busy writing and recording um yeah it's it's i don't yeah i think the, the thing the main thing was probably not playing live it was the first yeah. year last year last year that i never played live and i think i've been playing at least a gig or two every year probably since just trying to think how far back that is probably since about when i did my first gig which was back in oh god 88 yeah, something wow. like 89 yeah, i probably okay. played every year since then my very first gig i i, I can I, I remember my very first gig it was a, in a pub and with the band playing original material and i couldn't afford keyboards so i borrowed a couple of keyboards from a friend and I couldn't afford a keyboard stand, so I nicked my mum's ironing board. Oh, and nice. I remember somebody <laughs> uh, I did, did, did the show. Somebody came up to me, put 20 quid in my hand and put, said, there's a pint behind the bar for you. And I was just thought, oh, this is, this is it. This is what I want to do. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So every year since then I've played, except for, for last year, no gig. I mean, I did some virtual concerts, which yeah. sort of counting, but it's not quite the same as no. actually, you know. No. standing in front of an audience and uh, interacting. And I think it's fair to say then you have missed the live work. Looking forward to getting back to it. I have. I mean, I've been doing, I mean, obviously I've done loads of band works, trios, duos, all sorts of manner of stuff. But the thing I've been doing up until lockdown, which was um, I've been working a lot with an artist called Rodney Matthews, mm. uh, who's a phenomenal artist. And he did an album a couple of years ago, which I was heavily involved in. And we started to do these these art and music shows, which were gallery showings. And I would sit and play a grand piano for a concert to people, which was really nice because it was completely different to big rock shows and all the extravagant stuff. But to just sit there with a grand piano, an audience of people that want to listen to you, and you're surrounded by wonderful artwork, mm. they, they were really enjoyable. And we did a few of those and planning to do more. But then, um, you know, obviously the 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 uh, the pandemic hit and suddenly everybody stopped and um, but that, that was quite good fun because it it does it puts you on the spot have I got enough um not music I've got plenty of music to do but you know, have you got enough information there to do a live you know a live piano show yeah and um, Matt it's, it feels like Oliver's read our running sheet because we are going to ask you about Rodney later so we'll definitely right. be coming back to that uh, so that's good Marvelous. I won't talk too much about it no, I generally do this interview. I'll answer about 30 questions in the first one. And then everyone goes, oh, oh, that was great. Thanks very much. <laughs> That's funny. Well, what we usually do, Oliver, is start off with a bit of a potted history of yourself. So obviously, no, you grew up in a musical family, but just a bit of a potted history of your, your what got you into music and those early years, which you've sort of just alluded to with the ironing board. And I just love the fact that, you know, like a lot of us, you started off with an ironing board stand. Yeah. I mean, I my, my very first 
inkling of wanting to do music was I was about four, I think I was four. And I distinctly remember walking into the, um, we, we had a big grand piano in our lounge where my mum and dad were still together. And I walked into that and I picked up the lid of the piano and put my hands on it. And I'd somehow, I hit a perfect chord and it <laughs> sounded amazing. And I went, wow. And that was it. And I thought, brilliant. I like this. And then, of course, tried to do it again. And then it just sounded horrible. <laughs> so I realized that I was going to have to sort of learn properly. So I sort of said to my mum, you know, I'd like to do piano. And I distinctly remember having to sit in the in the in the in the piano room when I was five in primary school when they put the stars and things on your fingers to tell you what notes to hit I can, oh, yeah. and looking out the window seeing all my friends playing and thinking okay so I've got to put the work in here and um you know that was it and I did all the usual sort of stuff that teenagers do picked up guitars played football chased girls all the usual sort of stuff that everybody does in between trying to learn how to to do to do music stuff and um and, and just sort of I ended up moving down to um, Devon, which in England is, is sort of a West Country down mm. near the coast. Because uh, I used to live up in um, more in the central part of England, and um, I found that in North Devon there was a, a thriving uh, pub scene of live music. Because obviously there were lots of tourists that came down, there was lots of places to play, and I just ended up joining and playing anywhere and with anybody. You know, I'd go to I joined house bands, I used jam nights, do duo gigs, and anywhere joined, um, you know, function bands, playing all sorts of music that I didn't particularly enjoy. But it was a, uh, it was sort of part of my my road to learning how to do it and learning how to to be in front of people and playing with um sort of uh, in jam bands was massively helpful because that really teaches you how to interact with other musicians and the cues to look for and. You know, you're up there and somebody says, <clears throat> OK, we're doing this. It's it's an A, off we go. And you're sort of sitting there thinking, don't recognise that change. And you suddenly have to learn how to watch, yeah. you know, a guitarist's fingers and understand where the fret, where they are on the fretboard. And, oh, okay, OK, it's F sharp there. Oh, OK, up to D. All right, I've got it. And then you sort of, you learn all these bits and pieces. And um, and that was, that was I mean, I, I did classical training, but I, I always maintained that the, the training I got from playing in those bands was just as important as the the technique and the formative training because it just allowed you to work with other musicians and ultimately as musicians that's what we all like doing is is playing with other people we get a kick out of you know any number of people coming together and and making a sound that doesn't sound too horrible so what sort of extent did those influences play a part in you forming your own identity as a, as a musician um Oh, do, 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 do. let me think. Um, so when you were talking about first playing the piano uh, at a young age, yeah. was it just something it, 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 towards or was it because dad was, you know, around the house and, and playing as well? Well, I think, I, I think what everybody wants to say is that, yeah, I watched dad play all the time and it was phenomenal and that's why I wanted to yeah. be a piano player. But it, it kind of wasn't really that because my mum and dad divorced when I was five. Yeah. And I didn't see, see my dad from being... About, well, I mean, up until the age of five, I, I don't really remember much for the first two or three years. But <laughs> then he, then he, then he was away. Um, then he was away for most of the time. He, you know, he was away on tour, and ended up. So I only really saw him every now and then. So I didn't really sort of clock that much with him. We just lived in an unusual 
I lived in an unusual house, I suppose, that is, is when I was growing mm. up. I knew it was slightly different because, you know, it was it was quite a quite a big house. And, you know, we had stuff that sort of other people maybe didn't have that wasn't even just, you know, somebody with some money. It was it was sort of a, a an unusual sort of lifestyle. You know, we had a my dad collected cars and we had Clark Gable's Cadillac in the back garden and we had um the 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 yes tales from topographic oceans stage set in the back garden and weird things like that that just became pretty standard because it's the only childhood you know so that bit i knew was sort of slightly different but when it came to music influences i think i just sort of liked the piano i felt i had a natural aptitude for it my my body seemed to it seemed to make sense to my brain and things seemed to come easier than really you know other instruments that that i play and but when it came to sort of being influenced by his music, I, I remember when, when he moved back to the UK, when he when I was about 12, I think, when he married his third wife, um, I remember sort of talking to my stepmom and she was talking about a concert he was doing and he was, she was talking about Journey to Ascent of the Earth and I said, I, I've never heard it. Mm. And she went, what, what do you mean you've never heard it? And I said, I, I haven't heard it. And she looked at Dad and said, Rick, this is ridiculous. How come your son hasn't really heard what, what you do? And I'd heard bits because my mum, when I was in my early teens, my mum went into the loft and dragged down a load of records that he'd left behind when he'd gone. And, you know, that was, um, just, that story has just made me remind me of a record I need to put onto my list. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and, uh, the, um, she brought these records down and one of them was tales from demographic oceans uh and there was a few others there and i suddenly started listening to this stuff and then when i went to, to dad's house and and he he got out a few records for me tomato was one of them and um uh what was the other one he got me out was tomato uh, and he did get me king arthur and journey and i and i sort of still remember those albums and that was when i sort of went oh okay and then I just sort of didn't just do what probably most people think I've done because of the work I've done later in my years. I didn't just sit there and do nothing but work out dad's piano parts. No. I never, ever did. Just sort of went, this is great. What else is there? And yeah. then I did what most people do in their teens, which is that they suddenly realize that everything in the charts is pretty dreadful. And they suddenly try to discover stuff that they think no one else has ever heard of. And of course, everybody knows it. And I started to become quite fanatical about that sort of stuff. So I would go to car boot sales and I can I can remember to this day um, buying Mike Oldfield's tubular bells, coming home and spending an hour with it in a bathtub with a couple of earbuds trying to clean the grooves to, to, to make it listenable. Um, and so I sort of became into just listening to lots of things and I, I had two ways of doing it i would listen my stepdad was a was a big music fan um he he would always tell me stories about going to see chuck berry and the who and pink floyd regularly in the 60s and 70s uh, and so I, I sort of started asking about different different questions about bands and what he would do is if i'd gone out and bought a record he would tape it for me onto a tape and on, on the b side he put another record that he thought i might be interested in which is how oh, i ended up cool. discovering the doors so i had one record I really knew and like wanted on the front, of course, because it was a cassette, you had to turn it over and play it again or forward wind. And so I started to listen to these other albums. So I, I got into bands that way. Um, and then sometimes I would just be, 
confused and I'd say to my mum I remember once being with my mum on holiday and I walked into a, a shop called Woolworths in the UK and they had this sort of bargain bin of cassettes I remember saying to my mum oh what's this band Deep Purple are they a bit like Pink Floyd and my mum just for a quiet life said yeah they're exactly the same get in the car so I bought it and I suddenly became a huge Deep Purple fan and then I started doing things like getting um obscure with my friends because my friends and I would go into town at the weekends and we'd go into record stores and they'd pick up the latest record by Duran Duran or Aha and I suddenly started to try and be as slightly obscure as possible so I remember picking up 2112 by Rush because it had them all dressed <laughs> weirdly on the back and they were like what have you bought and it was like oh I, 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 this looks cool and then I remember I took it one stage further i bought gong the flying teapot one time and i think they stopped wow. asking me to go with them then <laughs> so that was really i really sort of magpied loads and loads of stuff but it was great and I, I i talked to my son my son's 16 and he's just starting to do the same sort of thing he's, he's in that sort of crossover between music that he sort of still likes from his childhood and computer game music and stuff and then he sort of listened to stuff the other day he came up to me and he said i've never heard stairway to heaven and so I'm starting to sit down with him and play him all these pieces. And, you know, I've, I've got a room full of CDs. And I just go and say, just pick stuff off the shelf. Just listen to things. Give it a try. And, we, you know, I play him oh, I, I, loads of stuff. I play him Deep Purple. And I play him folk stuff. A anything I can think of that suddenly occurs to me is like, oh, that was a cool song. I just sort of throw it at him. And most of the time he walks away going, oh, for God's sake, Dad. But every now and then he comes back to me and said, oh, I went and listened to a I'd listened to that Dream Theater record again the other day. That's pretty yeah. cool, you know. And so it's so, so it's it's that sort of thing. But that was that was where I, so my music wasn't really massively inspired by Dad, but it it no. it, it sowed the seeds of it really to be open minded. Um, so and it sounds like yeah, the sliding so, yeah. door, it sounds like the two sliding doors moments, Oliver. Actually, were your stepdad with the cassettes and the fact that you hit a great chord on your first try of the piano. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Yeah, bit bit lucky really, and then obviously moving into that um, area of, of Devon where it was very very music orientated yeah. really helped as well because when you're playing in blues bands and, and jam bands or house bands, you know they're often just throwing songs up and you're just going okay and you don't know what it is or somebody says oh we're going to try a new Dan Reed Network song tonight and you go okay right let me find it and then you suddenly listen to it and you go this is brilliant and so you end up learning more and more and more stuff and it's just it's just amazing and i was also lucky as well because in in north devon when i did all that sort of stuff i was in my i was in my teens and all the house bands were all sort of um made up of people in their 30s and 40s and so i started a trend that i probably carried on through most of my life which is always playing or the majority of time playing with people that are older than me yeah. so i've always had sort of raised raised the bar slightly to try and keep up but also you learn a lot because they've got experience absolutely what a great training ground so well i hope so <laughs> friends of people like my music on. <laughs> <laughs> let's uh, let's jump forward now to what you're working on currently um so we know that you've recently released a, a box set of the work you did with uh, clive nolan so tell us a bit yeah. about how this collaboration came to be and and had you always had a love for the the rock opera style albums uh, out there or was that something that Clive introduced you to or uh, well how do we if I start with where we met probably um, I used to do a uh, a radio show 
I used to have a friend of mine that did a rock show. And then we would often talk about, I would often go, he owned a record shop. I'd often go to his record shop shop and, um, you know, he'd recommend records for me to, to, to listen to. Uh, and he said, I'm doing a rock show now. Do you want to come up and talk about progressive music? He said, cause I don't know anything about it. And I, I hear it's getting a bit of a, a sort of a renaissance. It'd be really good to actually do a little section in the middle of the show. So I used to go up and do this bit called the prog spot where we would talk about, um, you know, classic records. Uh, and also, um, I would also, I was sort of getting to know people in, in the scene as well. So I was sort of, people were sending me records and, um, I would play those on the radio. And I remember some of the first records I got sent were things like The Kindness of Strangers by I think Spock's Beard and, and Roy Stoltz's first albums. And, and so really early days of these bands kicking off. And I used to play and promote them on the radio. And um, one of the times he phoned me up and he said, um, he said, I know you weren't due to come up this weekend. He said, but I've got a uh, Mick Pointer from the original drummer with Marillion coming up yeah. for an interview. He's done this, done this new album. He said, do you want to come up? And I thought, yeah, I've got a couple of old brilliant 12 inches, which mix on. That'd be nice to take those up, say hello, get them signed. So I, I did that. And we had a great time. And the evening just went on and on. We went out for drinks afterwards. And then he said to me, he said, oh, you must come up and meet Clive. Uh, he's my keyboard player. He's brilliant. You'll come up, come up. You two will get on really well. And um, I, I think I just did it. I just phoned up Clive one day and said, um, Mick said I should give you a call, and he went, yeah. "Oh, great! Why don't, why don't you come up?" And I think I think you were already there, Matt, weren't you at the time? I think I was. I, I think I remember that first meeting. <laughs> yeah, and um, we can't, in fact, you might be able to tell me whether this story is correct. Then the next one I'm going to tell. <laughs> normally, fact check. This will be normally, our first fact check normally podcast. I, uh, no, but, no, normally I can get away with telling these stories and not get fact checked. But yeah, this time I'm going to check. I do remember. I'd been up a couple of times and it was before uh, the studio moved to Virginia Water. It was in Maidenhead yes. and Steve Rothery had done a guitar solo on the Songs from the Lion Cage album. And we, um, we all went to the pub and Clive and I were sat there and he said, oh, Steve Rothery's coming in for a drink to say hello. And at that exact moment, Kaylee came on the jukebox. I remember that. <laughs> I, yeah. And he walked in and I went, did you put that on? <laughs> <laughs> and I just remember he sort of looked me up and down and someone said, this is Oliver. <laughs> and um, yeah. I've never forgotten that. And then about half an hour after a couple of drinks, Clive said to me, just went, oh, we should do something together, you know. And and that's where it started. We then started writing. And that was probably about 97, I think, probably 96, 97, something like that. Yeah. And yeah. Um, yes, yeah, so we did the first album. Uh, and then we... Um, that came out Jabberwocky, yeah which was which was very well received did very well i mean uh i mean i assume people know your background to to the verglass world do they matt or do we need to expand on that at the same no, time it'll all be known yes that's all oh, good that's okay okay so i can uh, i can drop you in it at many occasions that's um okay. <laughs> and so so the record came out with Ver, with verglass and um it, it did it did very well i mean we had lots of we managed to get lots of great people to play to play on it um the late peter banks obviously from yes was one uh bob catley was another f phenomenal musician there was lots of the what they used to call the thin ice orchestra which was the tracy hitchens dave wagstaff those 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 musicians came on board as well um 
I mean, a great time, and it did really well. And I, I seem to remember, Matt, you, you might deflate my ego here quite quickly, but I seem to remember it did sell out quite quickly. That's too long a pause, Matt. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, that's too long a pause, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe he's gone. Have we lost you, Matt? He doesn't want to answer at Sorry, all. Sorry, I was on mute. That's why he couldn't ah. hear <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, lightly excuse. Yeah. <laughs> no, from memory, I think it did do very well. And I think there was a lot of interest, obviously, uh, with you getting involved with Clive. So, uh, uh, And obviously, you continued that relationship with uh, two more albums. Yeah, well, yeah. we did The Hand of the Baskervilles after that, which came out about three years later. Um, we did a long time working on that because um, that was a much more uh, – in a sort of integral story to work into a record for that one. Whereas Jabberwocking was a sort of, we made up a story around the nonsense poem and the Hound of the Baskers was a lot more prescriptive. So that was a harder album to, to do. Um, and I, the thing I always liked about those two albums was that we didn't, the second album didn't just sound like a clone of the first. We managed to capture the atmosphere of the story, whereas Jabberwocky was a little bit more sort of, sort of lighthearted, yes. um, gentle sort of album still with you know hard-hitting bits whereas hand of the Baskervilles, because of its um the nature of the story was a little bit more hard-hitting and a little bit more aggressive uh and so i think that worked really well um <clears throat> and then we, we were due to start on a third one which we started but then the record company turned around and said um we haven't got any more money and mm-hmm. so we sort of didn't get to to work on it and so we sort of we drifted off into our different worlds. Clive went off into working, you know, with his his um his his musical crowd and carrying on with Arena and Pendragon. And I went off and started working with other musicians like Steve Howe and and then ended up joining the Straubs and Yes and doing all that silliness. Um and so we sort of we sort of kept in sporadic touch really. Uh and then a couple of a couple of years ago, I did a box set of the work that I did with with Yes, and that sold um, very well. And actually, was a surprise to the to the Yes management and the and the record company, and said that went really well. Um, would you have you got anything else that we think would make a nice box set? Uh, and then I said, well, there's these albums that Clive and I did that are out of print, um, and they aren't digitally available, and you know, you can find them on eBay, but they're very expensive. I, I was looking today, actually. I just searched this this morning for something on Amazon, and it recommended I buy Hound of the Baskervilles by me and Clive for two hundred and twenty-five quid. Wow! And I thought, and I just thought this is this is ridiculous. You know, as much as as much as anybody would like to think they're worth it, I don't think anybody should be paying that sort of money for a CD. Oh, and yeah. uh, and so. I said to Clive, look, I've got an opportunity here. I said, I can I can find a way of getting the, the costs covered to to, re, to repress it and get it out through the label. And he was like, yeah, great. Uh, and so I suggested this to the, the management company and they went, oh, that sounds terrific. Yeah. Um, have you got anything else that you could put in as a third disc? And I went, well, I said, we've probably got some some demos and bits and pieces, but I'm never really a great fan of just putting out a third disc that somebody listens to once because it's got a slightly different vocal take or a version of the song from the album slightly worse. Yeah. Um, never, never been a massive fan of that. Um, and so I sort of searching through things and thought, well, what have I got? And I came across this folder and I suddenly remembered that Clive and I had started to write a third album based on Frankenstein, but we'd never actually got 
I didn't think we got very far with it. But when I went through this folder of mine, I suddenly realized I had about 15, 20 minutes. And Clive went through a folder of his and realized he had about 15 minutes. And then I went through another folder and found that I'd written three other pieces of music for Hound, which we hadn't used. And I suddenly realized that actually there was probably about 50 minutes of mm. unheard music. So we basically then started working as we used to work, obviously within the constraints of, of lockdown and, and budget that was... <laughs> okay, we've got these songs and some of them were shells and some of them were a bit more developed. But then we started to work as we always did, which was sending each other each other's songs, listening to it, adding parts, coming back with ideas. You know, Clive sent me an instrumental and I said, look, I think you could make that into a vocal song. It would be, it would it'd cover this part of the story. Yep. And then there was another piece that I did, which was started off as a piano piece. And I sent it to Clive and said, look, I... I don't, you know, I think it'd be nice if you did the orchestration on this rather than me doing it. So he did the orchestration. And when I heard his orchestration, I suddenly thought, actually, it lends itself nicely to a song there. And so some words started to come. And then I started doing that. And it's like, oh, a bit of guitar would be. And suddenly, once you got one piece up to a really high level, you'd suddenly go, oh, now the other, now the other 11 don't sound as good. So we suddenly <laughs> started to, to keep raising the bar. And so we ended up doing that. And and because we were all in lockdown, it was really tricky. It was like, okay, well, it's going to be really, we're not going to be able to get a drummer to do this because nobody can get into a studio to record drums at the moment. So we had to make do with with um, not having a drummer on it. But we covered most other things. A guitarist friend of mine, David, Mark Pierce, who plays in my band, did guitars over everything for us. Um, it turned happened that uh, Andy Sears was staying with Clive, who was um, uh, a very well-known singer. So he sang on a mm. couple of tracks and... I'm still very good friends with Paul Manzi, who played with Arena and my yep. band. And he now plays with The Sweet. And he sang a couple of tracks. And I knew this young vocalist that was looking for a, uh, an opportunity to sing. And so she came on board. And then when I needed a classical guitarist, it was like, well, you know, I've worked with Gordon Giltrap for many years. And I yeah. sort of phoned up and said, hey, Gordon, would you do this? And he, he said, yeah. And so so suddenly we ended up doing what we did before, which was managing to pull in lots of really established very very good musicians to play on songs that up until a few months ago were just sort of languishing in a folder because there'd never been any um project for them to come out of and i'm i'm a bit of a stickler if i'm writing for a for a, a storied album or a, or a record in some description that's got a theme i'm not a great one for just going in and saying oh there was that piece i once wrote it about toad stores but now i'm going to make it about apples i don't i'm not very good at doing that if a story if a piece of music was written for a story or an idea or a particular emotive piece of a story, it, it kind of has to retain that because that's where the magic happened. That's where the that's where it came from for me. Um, and I know other musicians are different. Other people magpie stuff all over the place. And I, I probably do maybe with instrumental bits, but songs with lyrics in particular just felt that they they wouldn't easily transition into something else. So that gave the whole. Uh, third album a bit of authenticity um but when we realized we didn't have the whole of the frankenstein story done because we'd obviously never had the money to take it past the initial writing which is when you really start to craft it and pull mm. the story structure together um we realized that this third album couldn't be called frankenstein so we <clears throat> clive had come up with a title um when we were talking about a third album when we realized we didn't have the money he said to me he said, why don't we just do a keyboard album and make all the instrumentals based on, you know, fables that are all dark, you know, rather than light fables. And I sort of thought, oh, 
Dark Fables. That's a nice title. Mm. But I, I didn't think people would be interested in um, an album that wasn't like Jabberwocky or Hound. I didn't think people would be that happy with that. So I, I wasn't too keen on it. Clive probably wasn't too keen on it. But when we came to do this third album, it seemed like a really good title to use because it did encompass, you know, the three albums <clears throat> in a, a sort of dark way. And so we, we did that and then we sort of put it together in a box set and um, had to spend first thing we did actually spend ages coming up with the title for the box set. And we came up with Tales by Gaslight because mm. each of the stories is based on Victorian or Edwardian uh, literary novels. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and-, and, then, and, and it was just rebuilding everything. And I remember I've, I've got to tell this bit quickly, but I had mm. to rebuild all the booklets because. I don't know whether your listeners do know this, but Matt did the original Jabberwocky logo. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> you did many years ago. And Clive couldn't find the file anywhere. And the oh. old, computer, old computer had got thrown away and all the artwork had gone. So I had to rebuild all the old art, all, rebuild it with new artwork. But I thought, I can't not use the Jabberwocky logo because it was so good. So I was searching around and then found a very old, um, promotional flyer that was put together for Inside Out Music, and I managed to cut it all out and rebuild your logo, Matt, and use it on the cover. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's amazing. fantastic. What a great story. <laughs> You've just made his year. And um, <laughs> no, and we'll definitely be linking, um, Oliver, to to the box set and, and so on. People definitely need to check it out. And I, I'm impressed you did manage a third album because I hear that Clive Nolan bloke's a nightmare to deal with because we had him on the, the podcast a few episodes back. And what a lovely bloke he is now being serious. <laughs> yeah, he, was, he was great. It was really – it was like old times actually because – Yeah. Uh, I, I think people find it a bit strange sort of going – Oh, but you're a keyboard player working with another keyboard player. Don't you get in each other's way and don't you argue and don't you fight? And it's like, well, Clive summed it up when we did an interview together. We did a we did a Q&A together on um, on YouTube. And, you know, one of the, the, the questions was, is, well, it must be odd two key, keyboard players. And how did you work together? And Clive just went, well, it was it was a collaboration. You know, we both mm. wrote, we both wrote lyrics, we both arranged and we both soloed. So we just worked together and, you know, added what parts we wanted to to each other's pieces of music and it was always about the song you know we we had an agreement that it was always about the song and about the story and you know i would come up with some ideas and then suddenly i'd find that clive had written an instrumental and suddenly my bit was in the middle of it because he said that's what it needed and i've had a song once and i sort of went oh, i'm not i can't really come up with a chorus for this and he said oh well i've got something that might work and then there were pieces that were just mine and pieces that were just his and we just played on hmm. And we just we just worked really well together. And then someone said, "Yeah, that's really weird. Two keyboard players working together." <laughs> and I said, "Well, I said, well, why? Guitarists have been doing it for years. That's nobody right. complains. Nobody complains that a rock band's got two guitarists. That's so true. why sh- why should it be odd? Here, you know, here. we've got a yeah. So um, so it was it was great. Uh, you know, and, and we and when we sort of started doing this again, we were we were fine, but we were doing it all over the internet, just emails first of all, and 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 stuff. And then um, we had to get together for some photos and we, um, you know, and then we had to do these video chats and it really was just like jumping straight back in. It really, it really was very, very strange. And, um, you know, I ended up back up at Thin Eye Studios recently to do some work, you know, and bumped into Clive and and, and his his partner, Sean was there and David Wilson was there. And it was like, 
blimey, nothing changes. Who would have thought? <laughs> That's great. Know, it's like, like old times. It was. It was like I said. To, I came out and said to my wife, I said, you know, 26 years later, and I walk into the studio, and it's like a lot of the same people. I, it's just really weird that that part of your life just just doesn't change. It just stays stable with people doing what they love. It's kind of it's a nice feeling. That's for yeah. sure. So Oliver, you you mentioned earlier the the silliness of uh, being drawn into yes. Um, I understand that that may not have been the, the easiest of experiences for you, but having grown up around the band to some extent and, and having known some of the guys relatively well, did it ever feel like a natural progression for you to, to join the ranks or how did it sort of come about that you, you ended up in the band? Uh, well, I'd worked with Steve Howe when I stopped doing when I stopped with with Clive. The next album that I did, actually, no, I did it in between the albums. Actually, between Jabwalk and Hound, I did an album with Steve Howe called "The Three Ages of Magic," which was all stuff I'd written and and Steve uh, played guitar and was the executive producer on. Uh, and that was, um, <clears throat> uh, you know, a great fun album to work on. And at the time, that was around the time that Igor joined Yes. And one time we were sat in his lounge, and he said, and Steve said to me, he said. How crazy would you feel if I suggested you for the keyboard player role in Yes? And I thought, I thought, blimey. <laughs> um, I said, I'm not sure. Yeah, you know, okay. If you want to ask me, ask me. But nothing ever came of it because John had already found this this Russian bloke, and that followed the path that it did. Um, and then many years later, it was 2007. It was around Christmas time, 2007, and uh i walked i walked in there was a there's a the phone rang and i picked it up and it, it it was steve and we kept in touch all the time and i'd played on a couple of his albums as well and we used to catch up socially uh i mean steve's you know he's quite a reclusive chap and and spends a lot of time you know on it on his own but we always actually got him very very well and would often often meet up and you know have chats and talk music and and whatnot and um he phoned up and he just said would like you to would you like to join yes i went uh what he said he said well your dad doesn't want to do it and he said no i think you could do it you know i think you'd be a good fit um he said your dad recommended you and what do you think and i said well if you can just you know give me 10 seconds to think about it so (laughs) i thought put my hand over the speaker, said to my wife, and she sort of nodded at me. And I went, yeah, great. And it was when John was in the band. It was to do the the 40th anniversary. And so my world sort of went into this world of, right, okay, I'm doing this thing now. And I started having lots of conversations with John Anderson about, you know, what the set was going to be, how he wanted it to work, blah, blah, blah. And we went through all this stuff. And then John got sick and then couldn't do it. And that's when Steve came back to me and said, look, we – yes has been dormant for too long we want to go back out on the road and do stuff we've got this tribute uh singer uh benoit david um are you still on board and i said yeah 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 of course i am you know i'm obviously sad for john but i didn't want to miss the opportunity to go out and play this great music and and so that was it and then they gave me a set list i had two weeks to learn it on my own uh and that was the old-fashioned way of sitting with a cd stopping yeah. it going back listening stopping listening listening over and over again and they they had this this way that they wanted to work which was that they wanted to do what yes had been doing over the years which was change the arrangements slightly um 
but what they wanted to do was instead of doing all the bits where dad and other members of the band that had come in had sort of ad-libbed and made stuff up they said we want to do everything actually as per the originals so it was really difficult to learn because i didn't have the opportunity to just sit there and listen to one song i'd sort of have Mm. to learn the original then listen to the live versions and work out the bits that needed to be changed and go back to the original so it was quite a complex piece of learning uh, and of course the you know the first set was three and a half hours long and, <laughs> and, I, and i and i had two out two weeks to learn it before i got to rehearsals we had three weeks of rehearsals which was my first time with the keyboard rig because all the keyboards were out in america they i got all keyboard rig um built for me uh, and i remember turning up in it was hamilton in in canada and i turned up on day one and of course you know they've all been playing together for you know 30 years mm. ben war had been playing in a, a yes tribute band for five years and as i said at the beginning of this i'd never spent any of my time ever learning any of dad's no. music or yes's music and so it was all new to me and then of course i then you know i got to know chris squire really well but then i also learned about his legendary you know not starting early reputation <laughs> so you know i'd say right okay so it's rehearsals tomorrow morning he said yeah i'll be there around one and it was like <laughs> uh, okay and what time do we go through to well, about five and it's like, <laughs> oh, dear. okay so you're giving me we've got three weeks to get ready for the first show and we're going to do uh what's that for it's 20 hours a week so we've got 60 hours <laughs> to do a three and a half hour set and we've never played together before and so yeah. i used to get up really early go into the the rehearsal room and just sit there with headphones on and just play and play and play and play and play until it just sort of got into my head then we'd finish rehearsals i'd come back get something to eat sit in my room with a usb keyboard and a headphone and the songs and just play and just refine and refine and refine and it was you know it was very very hectic wow really really difficult but but great fun you know and after about five shows the band sort of fell into a bit of a rhythm and on the second tour you know it, it, it suddenly felt a lot more relaxed and then by the you know by the, the second year we were you know chris came up to me once and he said um he said there isn't a yes song that this lineup couldn't do justice to and i took that as an enormous compliment absolutely um, yeah and so that was that was great you know but i didn't know chris before the before the the, the tour um i only knew alan briefly and obviously my my main relationship was with was with chris yeah um with with steve rather so it was new and you know and they did say it was a bit weird sometimes looking across the stage because i i have a a passing resemblance to my my dad and um they used to say it was a bit weird looking across on stage sometimes because it just looked to them like like dad was up there playing Mm. at times um which was which was a bit strange. And then you know, Chris said to me once on the way back from a gig, I, th- I said something, and he said, he said you're so much like your father, fifty percent of the time. He said, and the other fifty percent of the time, said you're nothing like him. <laughs> and he, I went, oh okay, that's nice. And he said, and you tell an awful lot less bottom jokes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great, love it. <laughs> and <laughs> so Oliver, I know we're getting. I know you've got to be somewhere in a while. Um, I'm gonna. I'd love to talk about that yes rig, but I'm going to avoid that question and just talk more broadly. You know, what what are your go to pieces of gear that you love at the moment and use regularly, whether it's on 
album recordings or when you were able to do live work up until recently? Uh, I've got a, I did some endorsement for a company called Dexabel who oh, yeah. do some yeah. wonderful pianos. And I have a, a, a H7 sat next to me here, which I do most of my writing on now. Mm. Um, a lovely keyboard. It looks beautiful. To me, it looks like the sort of piano Apple would make if they ever made a piano. Um, it's just a lovely design. I've got, it's basically what I've got in this room. I've got a little writing room and the pieces, the keyboards that stay with me are in here. I've got um, uh, uh, a Kronos SE behind me, which yep. it is lovely. And I've got my Moog little fatty that came everywhere on tour nice. me, up on the top. Yeah. I've got some virtual Moogs, but I still tend to like going up there and, and fiddling with that because you get yeah. a bit of performance feel with it. Uh, I love, And I've got, um, it's, it's going to sound phenomenally old fashioned, but years ago I bought a couple of Roland D50s as just, oh, nice. yeah. just, just lovely workhorse keyboards. Nothing about them that was particularly standout. They just did everything really well. That's right. Uh, and so I tend to use those. I use a lot of virtual stuff. I do a lot of IK multimedia uh, stuff. The yeah. um, so, uh, but you know, I'm nothing nothing particularly outlandish. I'm not a no. I'm not a phenomenally um, technical programmer. My my keyboard tech is is really into that. I've always been a bit of a a bit of a player first rather yeah. than a. A, a techie person and i have nothing but admiration for people that can sit there and, and completely construct a sound from nothing um i've never had that i'm not sure whether it's patience or ability but um <laughs> i've always been a bit more of a turn it on and and play and get inspired sort of player um but yeah they're my th those are the ones that really that really sort of stick with me i mean i've got loads of sort of traditionals i've got you know the old Corgo 1W, which is also a very good workhorse. Nice. Yeah. I'm trying to think what's in the garage. It's M3. Korg M3 was a very nice keyboard. I used yes, that. Was. Uh, oh, the one I do really like is the old Korg uh, CX, CX7, the organ. Oh, yeah. that's, that's a very nice keyboard as well. Nice. Yeah. Well, that, that'll make our gearheads happy, Oliver. That's why I <laughs> felt the need to cover that. So, yeah, back to you, Matt, for the, the, the substantive question. <laughs> So uh, at the start of this interview, Oliver, you mentioned about uh, doing a bit of work with Rodney Matthews. And for yeah. those that don't know Rodney, he's uh, he's been well known through the years of doing some fantastic album covers for bands like Magnum and Eloy and uh, uh, well, the, the Jabberwocky project that uh, we were just talking about as well. Yeah. Um, but not many people know that he's a musician. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about the, the musical relationship that you have with Rodney? I know you've known him for a long time, but uh, how did you get playing with him? Yeah, I mean, the story with Rodney is 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 great. He, um, he, he, uh, well, I was supposed to start in this. I, I, when I was at college, I did art as college, as most musicians do. And I ended up doing my final diploma on an artist and my student, my, my tutor who knew my family uh, history, came up to me and said, right, you've all got to pick an artist to do your um, your final uh, project on. And she looked at me and she said, I presume you're going to choose Roger Dean. And I just went, no. Uh, and so I suddenly <laughs> thought, right, who, who, can I, who can I choose? And I'd seen, I'd bought, as I was talking about earlier on in my, my stuff of going out and buying obscure records, I had bought Bo Hansen's Lord of the Rings record purely oh, because yeah. of the cover, which had Rodney's cover on yeah. it. And I looked on the back and it was Rodney Matthews. And so I, I managed to get in touch with him. And he was very gracious, wrote me a lovely handwritten letter back 
sent me uh, his books, wrapped them up in posters and said, you know, whatever you need, just let me know. So I did all these these questions, asking him how pieces came about uh, and, and did my project and, and, and um, completed my course and passed it. So and we'd sort of then from that point on, we sort of kept in sporadic touch. And I had to use I did a few bits of, of album design for somebody I did, but took my art skills to keep doing design work. And I did some album sleeves, which involved his work. And then we'd sort of he wrote to me one day and he just oh he phoned me up. That was it. He phoned me up and he said, I'm I'm doing a I'm doing a record. And I said, oh, yeah. And he said, yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I played drums and he, he played it. He played. He, he had a point in his life where he wasn't sure whether he wanted to be a drummer or whether he wanted to be an artist. He was that on the cusp of which way he was going to go. And he actually even played in a band, I think, supported Yes many, many, many years ago. <laughs> and he he phoned me up and he said, look, I've been working on this record. I said, oh, how long have you been working on this record for? And he went, uh, next, by next Thursday, it'll be 20 years. And I, went, <laughs> I went, oh, OK. And basically, he had a guitarist, Jeff Sheets, that was in America. And every time he'd gone over to America, they'd sat down and written some ideas and put some stuff together. And he said, we're sort of getting to the point now where we've got enough for the album. And we think it could do with some, you know, other instrumentation on it. Um, so he he came to, to my house and, and sort of said, well, this is one of the pieces. And it's it's got me playing drums and we've got a bit of bass on it and, and the guitars and things. And I listened to it and I said, well, what, what, what are you looking for? Are you looking for me to just, you know, plonk keyboards on top and then just, you know, say, great, lovely that we've done some stuff together? Or, or are you looking for an, a musical opinion? And he said, I'll go for the musical opinion. He said, I know you've done a lot of stuff. I'd be interested to see what you think. And so I, I sort of blindsided him a bit because he sat next to me and I sat at the keyboards and then five hours later i'd sort of chopped parts out added bits in extended sections done all the orchestrations keyboards on top and added a solo and he sort of sat there and went uh well that was terrific thanks very much and um i sort of went well you know if you don't like it doesn't matter i'll do what you want me to do and he sort of went okay well it's great to see you and then he got in his car and he drove home and he said and on the way home he listened to the song and then he listened to it again he got home and he said he listened to played it to his son and his son went that's amazing, Dad. And then he phoned me up and he said, I've come, I can see what you did now. I can see why you cut the bits you cut and why you did that. He said, it flows much better. And I said, well, sometimes that happens if you're not too close to the music. If you're a little bit apart from it, you can hear the music without being too emotionally attached to it. And he said, would you do another one? I said, yeah, of course I will. And then ended up doing, I think it was like, 10 of the 11 pieces on on the record and that's how we ended up working and wow. it was great and there was some songs where they couldn't do some stuff and they needed me to write some bits and i, I wrote a piece for him and then they wanted to do um <clears throat> Mazursky's night on bear mountain and they'd condensed i mean that's about 20 minutes that piece and um they said well the second half is all really quiet orchestrations so i had to completely orchestrate the end part of that piece and I said, and how have you done the first part, the first 10 minutes with all the orchestrations and stuff? He's, oh, we've condensed that down into two minutes of drum and bass. And it was like, okay, right. So my bit's 10 minutes of pure intricate classical <laughs> stuff. And you've just rocked out for two and a half minutes picking the bits that you like best. Okay. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> and it really worked. But uh, And we've just been become great friends. And 
you know, we, we, in fact, I wrote to him earlier on today, we're going to catch up in the week. And then we did, um, a Christmas single together. And then we did another Christmas single together and I'm sure we'll do another one at some point. And then I did the music for his film that, uh, came out recently, which was, um, a film called the journey of a junior adventure. Uh, and I did the um, soundtrack for that. And that's been very well received as well. So it's a, so, a sort of an ongoing, ongoing relationship, really. It's just, just great fun. He's a, and he's a great drummer. He's a really good drummer. And he's got, he's unusual. He's not a, he's not a traditional rock drummer either. He comes from a bit of a jazz background. So he sort of does a lot more um, playing around the kit in a jazz way than, than you would normally expect in rock music. So it gives it an, un- an interesting feel to the music as well, which, which is great. That's great. Stuff. And um, it, it sounds to me like that's another really um, creative collaboration and it sounds like it's gone relatively well. So I, I think that's a good segue to the polar opposite, which is when things haven't gone well, Oliver, because we, we, we're sort of hitting the home stretch here. What's your most memorable train wreck on stage? When, when have things gone terribly wrong for you that you can recall? Oh, I'd like to say never, but I'll have to. <laughs> You'd I'll be the to... first guest that did. <laughs> <laughs> there was one that was particularly um <laughs> particularly difficult and i never actually owned up to it but i'll do it now because it seems like a <laughs> seems like we're all friends together um i went on tour with bob catley and he sent me all the music <clears throat> and i learned it i learned the whole set learned everything everything down perfectly and then when we got to the rehearsals out of the sort of 14 songs in the set, seven of them, he suddenly said, oh, actually, I need to do this a semitone down. Oh. I went, oh, you're kidding me. I said, we go, we're in rehearsals. We've got three rehearsals and we do our first show in a week and a half. I said, and you, you want to do seven of the songs in a different key? Mm-hmm. And the guitarist said, yeah, we're not relearning. We're just going to have a second guitar and down detune by a semi. So I went, okay, right. Well, what I'll do is I'll just, you know transpose the keyboard yeah. for those those seven songs that's just <clears throat> and to be fair some of the songs with the solo parts were solos that didn't really lend themselves to a flat mm. instead of a so that's which right. i think a lot of keyboard players will probably um <clears throat> you know particularly if you've got sliding notes where you're sliding off of you know uh, an e flat to an e and suddenly you've mm. got sort of slide up from a d to an e flat it doesn't quite work so no. it's a lot of that flow when you're playing so we agreed that this was the way that we were going to be able to do this to accompany, you know, to accommodate um, Bob's voice. And we got to one show and there was one song which I had to start the song with. And it was one of these tracks that I was supposed to go back up to, you know, standard tuning. And the last song had finished a semitone down. And because it was just me and Bob, I played and he could sing along with it perfectly. And it was like about a minute the intro of just me and him and then when the rest of the band came in it sounded absolutely <laughs> appalling they were semi-toned out and they just sort of looked at each other and confused and i sort of looked at them and went oh for goodness sake we're gonna have to start again <laughs> transposed it and then started again and then it went through perfectly and they all they all went what on earth happened there and i was like yeah. no idea what's wrong with you oh. lot that's the best transpose story ever Oliver, because that's different <laughs> yeah that's a little bit different i love that <laughs> that's great so yeah so that, that, that was a bit of a moment yeah um so the final two i know we've got to let you go the final two you... brain teaser questions that's okay so um tag a keyboard player is a regular thing we do so 
um, inspirations for you that if you had the opportunity to hear them interviewed, if you haven't already, that you'd love to hear speak about their career? Oh, well, <clears throat> there's a there's a couple of kids. I mean, obviously, everybody thinks that dad is my inspiration. And, you know, he's, a, he's an influence. I can't deny that, you know, it's difficult to not be influenced by everything he's done in his life. But frankly, I've, I've heard a lot of him talking over the years. That's so right. I don't... <laughs> I don't, I don't need to, to hear any any more from from dad um you know sometimes if you if i'm ever with him and we're having breakfast it's like you know what dad we don't need a joke now we can keep it quiet for a bit um so but i was always i was always a huge fan of john lord massive fan yeah. of john lord and when and i know it's not their favorite their even their own favorite album or the average deep purple fans favorite album but i always loved who do we think we are and I think John Lord has got some of the most amazing mm. keyboard solos on that album. He does. Um, I can't remember which track it was. I think it might be Rat Back Blue. There's a, an amazing keyboard solo in, in Rat Back Blue or not. But it's one of those tracks around the middle of the album. And it's, it's just astounding. And I would love, love to have talked to him or listen mm. to him talk about that sort of stuff. Because, you know, obviously he died. I can't remember how long ago it was now, like 10 years ago. But, you know. A while ago, yeah. Yeah. But he was... And he was, and it was before I sort of managed to sort of get myself into a, a different position in the music world where I would have been able to interact with him uh, or, or get to, to get to shows. Mm. I did go to see him play, you know, as a, as a fan. I went along and, and watched him play. I mean, and nowadays with, you know, the way that we've all worked in music for such a long time, we all, you know, we're all on a, a sort of similar circuit. So you bump into right. people that in, in the past would have been your idols and suddenly you're finding that they're, you know, mm. they're your peers is probably the wrong word right. but they're on, the, they're on the, the same circuit that you're doing and you're going and you're getting to know them as, as different people but john lord i never got that opportunity with and i would love to have i'd mm. love to have sat and listened to him talk about those early early days that would have been that would have been quite something yeah. good choice great pick. yeah great pick um and then the last one i did give you some warning about a minute before we started recording oliver desert island yeah. is five albums you couldn't live without Right. Well, I've got, I've got five here, and they aren't. I wouldn't say they're the five albums I couldn't live without, but they're the five albums that I think have actually had the most plays in my in my in go. my life. I right. think, which because even though sometimes I might put them on and go, oh god, not this again, but <laughs> and and the, some of them are slightly um, one or the other, depending. I'm always torn between Twenty One Twelve and Hemispheres by yeah. Rush <clears throat> because. I love the rawness of 2112 and the fact it's just mm. the three of them with just their primary instruments. But I love Hemispheres because it's got the added additional instrumentation on it and it's, uh, it's a developer. Either of those two, I, I don't mind. Excellent yeah. choice. Um, obviously, we just talked about who do we think we are because yep. that was a f formative record for me. Um, uh, the Grand Illusion by Styx because it was one of those nice. records that came down from the attic when I was a kid. And I still absolutely love it. I can listen to that today and it's still as fresh as it was. And things like The Angry Young Man and Miss America, just amazing tracks, which I have no problem listening to over and over again. Um, there was an album, which I think maybe people don't know, but there was an artist called Poe who did an album called Haunted, which I okay. absolutely, absolutely love. Uh, it's very difficult to find, but if you can find it, it's an album I listened to and over and over and again. The story behind it was it was a 
the story that I heard behind the album was that it was a, a lady whose um, father had died and left her answers to all the questions he thought she would ask him if wow. he was still alive. And she found these cassettes of all these questions and answers and then built an album around all the things that she would tell him. Okay, and I want to listen to that. Yeah. It's 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 an amazing album. Uh, you might might not float your boat, but for me, I listen to it and I just I just love it. Great. I love the concept behind it. I love the thought behind it. And so many great songs on there. Cool. Uh, and the other one, which was a big one for me, was Eat Me in St. Louis by It Bites, because that was just yes. a phenomenal album. And I listened to that over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. I think I like all their other stuff, but that album for me was just the perfect blend of a band on the cusp of really making it and then sort of mucking it up. But yes. that was the album. That's the album before they mucked it up where they were just on the, on the flow. Uh, and just underneath that, the bubbling unders, which were my other, other ones was probably something like slam by Dan Reed network was always, uh, and there's probably a few of my dads in there and, and stuff that I probably should have thrown in there. Um, no, but those, that's their great picks. Great. Picks. Yeah. They were the five that I think really sort of, I could, I could pick those up at any time or I, I sort of tried to do that in a mind of what would I want to sit there and make my son listen to? And those would probably That's be, right. I'd say, have a, have a listen to these. This is how it's done. That's good parenting right there. It is good parenting right there. So Oliver, cannot thank you enough for that. I know we could talk for hours um, and we only scratch the surface, but re really appreciate you um, spending the time you have with us and um, look forward to the great stuff coming up for you. And, and may you have some great live gigs in the coming year. Oh, fingers crossed. And I may even get down to your uh, your part of the world oh, at some point. Even better. We'd love never, to see ne you. Never played there, but I will try. I will try. Yeah, good bucket <laughs> list. Good bucket list um, thing to do. So, no, thank you so much. Yeah, lovely to talk again, Oliver. So I think it's fair to say that our prediction at the start of, of the show, Matt, was that, that Oliver was a, a good guy to talk to as well and truly born fruit. That was a, a lot of fun. Absolutely. He's got some great stories and he's worked some, with some really interesting musicians. So uh, he makes for a great uh, interviewee for sure. Yeah, no, that was an absolute pleasure. So a, a huge thanks to Oliver for that. It was really, really valued and um uh, as we joked as we got off um, the the recording um, about Oliver coming down under, we, we do hope you'll book it during um, the Australian winter because it sounds like the sun and Oliver don't mix well. <laughs> so we look forward to seeing you, <laughs> Oliver, down here at some stage in June, July or August uh, in one year when we're all back to somewhat normal. So, yeah, thank you again. Um so we'll be back again in the next few weeks, but just a reminder that you can keep in touch via a few means. Our website is www.keyboardchronicles.com. Um, we're still on Facebook well and truly at facebook.com forward slash keyboard chronicles, on Twitter at the keyboard chr1, and always keen for the good old-fashioned email at editor at keyboardchronicles.com. I'd also like to give a special shout-out to our Patreon um, contributors, we appreciate you every single week. And if you'd like to become an official supporter, we do have a Patreon account where for the price of a coffee a month, you can help us go from strength to strength. And you do get some benefits of that. You certainly do get to have input into questions uh, when we get the opportunity, if the timelines uh, do it. We do like to give people a preview of what's coming up next. And we've also started creating um, some extra content 
uh, for Patreon subscribers. So if you do are interested in doing that, it's patreon.com forward slash keyboard chronicles. A huge thank you to you, Matt, for joining me. This was an absolute pleasure, and I, I do need to warn you that the next prog guest we get back, I may be calling on your services again. I hope that's okay. <laughs> Absolutely. Pleasure was all mine, David. Uh, thank you. And uh, most importantly, thanks to you all out there for listening, and we hope to see you back here next episode. Thank you.